right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Marcelo. Hello, everyone. Mick. Hi. And we have a returning guest, David McConnell. How are you doing today, David? I'm good. How's everybody? Happy to be here. Good. Glad to have you here. And today we're going to be discussing the FDA ban on menthol cigarettes. And before we get into that, we do have an update for you. Uh, the House has finally passed the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. So that should be going to the Senate. We'll see how that pans out. We might talk about that in future weeks. And now we're going to get into some announcements. I'll turn it over to Mick. Yeah. So um, just a reminder, you can follow Between the Liars on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and and YouTube. And as for the live stream, we are streaming whenever possible on Saturdays at noon. Obviously, it's not noon right now, but usually most weeks you can catch us at that time. Join so we can respond to your comments and you can access the live stream through the YouTube page and the Facebook page. We're already at more than 500 lifetime views. So thank you so much for your support. And last but not least, don't forget that merch for this show is available on redbubble.com. They have stickers and more. I don't get any money, but they do. So be the cool kid in school. Get your some merch uh unfortunately we don't really make any money off of that either but hey you know maybe it'll at least fuel <laughs> the streaming of the show all right before Wish we get thinking <laughs> i know honestly uh before we get into our overview uh, i'm going to turn over to mick and then david for their disclaimers and then we'll go from there yeah, so just as a reminder, um, I'm a graduate student who studies the rhetoric of drug research, drug use, and drug policymaking. Uh, my expertise is in words and how we use them, and that's the perspective that I'm speaking from. Um, my views are mine and mine only, and they don't represent those of any university, employer, or other affiliated group um, who has a connection to me, either past, present, or future. Um, if you're agreeing or disagreeing with anything that I'm saying, you're agreeing and disagreeing with me and me only. And hi, everybody. I'm David. As most of you know, I am a law student. That means that I am not a lawyer. That's why I call myself a law student. So nothing that I'm saying should be taken as legal advice. Also, because I am not a lawyer, that means that I am definitely not your lawyer. So don't think that I'm giving you specifically legal advice. Finally, I express a lot of opinions on this show. Some of those opinions are great. Some of those opinions are not so great. But all of them are mine and mine alone and do not reflect the views of any of my past, present, or future employers or schools for that matter or anyone else. Um, so yeah, if you think that I'm great, remember that you think I'm great, not that they're great. And if you think that I'm an idiot, remember that you think I'm an idiot and not that they're idiots. Well, I mean, if you want to pay me as your lawyer, uh, I don't have any law school expertise or knowledge, but I would gladly <laughs> take the money for being a lawyer. <laughs> uh, yes, as always, our views are our own. Uh, and even within the show, we disagree with each other. So don't blame it on the others, blame it on the individual. Okay, so let's move on to the overview. Uh, what exactly are we dealing with today? And let's start with the definition and concept of what is a menthol. All right. So a menthol refers to a type of cigarette, of course. Menthol itself is a chemical. It's derived from mint, so it has a lot of the same properties. Supposedly, if you're smoking a menthol cigarette, it's supposed to like make your mouth feel a little bit cooler, make your throat feel a little bit cooler. It's also supposed to make the taste of tobacco a little bit less harsh. Menthol was first added to cigarettes in the 1920s and 30s. It would take off a little bit later in the 1900s. Nicotine, of course, makes the smoke less harsh. But on top of that, it also makes the smoke a little bit easier to inhale, allegedly. As of today, about 19 million people smoke menthols as their cigarette of choice. These products, for the most part, are Newport's, Cools, Camel Crush. Um, I'm sure some of you know more of these brands, but uh, I'm not a big cigarette smoker. So those are the ones that I know. So one thing that we also have to touch on is why is the FDA trying to ban them? Like why now and why at all? And so menthols are the last available 
little flavor cigarette product. Like, <laughs> like many of in, in this show, I don't smoke. So all of this I had to research. Uh, this is the only available flavored smoke uh, cigarette product, sorry, in, in the market. Everything else was banned until now. And FDA is trying to ban this last flavor because they want to save lives. And it's in the press release. It's in their language. Like they they say they want to do this to save lives, uh, personally because of how... Uh, enticing it can be to have a cigarette that doesn't really taste like cigarette it tastes like something else and again they've been trying to do this for a long time since the 1990s they've been trying to ban all of the flavors and now they're taking steps to get the last one menthols are predominantly smoked by um, younger smokers and they're particularly popular um, in uh, african-american markets Um, in the latter case this is widely due to predatory marketing practices that big tobacco had prior to the 1990s when the fda and congress cracked down on how big tobacco could advertise in general. But that predatory marketing was so effective that today around 85% of uh, black smokers choose menthols compared to around 30% of white smokers. So when looking at the ban, we also have to keep in mind who this is going to affect. Specifically, in this case, it it would be predominantly black or African-American smokers. So let's go ahead and we'll talk about the pros and then we'll move into some of the cons. So if this ban goes through as it seems it likely will. The FDA is projecting that there's going to be about 923,000 people who will quit smoking. Just under half of that they would project would be African Americans who would stop smoking. So they're trying, in essence, to undo the damage that was done when big tobacco was allowed to market themselves in movies and like have all of their advertising. And there was much less restrictions on what they could do as far as advertisements and targeting specific demographics in order to boost their product. So mainly the pro here is going going to be that logically when something is no longer available, fewer people will be using it. Uh, There is some evidence that menthols are harder to quit because they are smoother and cooler to smoke, uh, meaning that people are going to probably notice some of the side effects a little bit less or it might take a little bit longer. And by that point, they are already addicted. Um, And then there's also some evidence that suggests that menthols allow for a deeper inhalation or penetration of smoke into the lungs because it is much easier to inhale mentholated cigarette smoke compared to regular cigarette smoke. So the data would show then that the menthol cigarettes have not only a more addicting effect, but also tend to have more adverse effects on the individuals who choose to smoke them. So basically their pitch here is at large, if we can get people to stop smoking, that's a win. I think one of the questions we'll have going forward is, is that actually going to be the case? Uh, Any other pros before we move on to the cons? Just sort of a a meta overview here. From a philosophical standpoint, I like the idea of treating like substances alike. And so if you'll remember earlier in the 2000s, they banned all of the other tobacco flavoring types, at least for cigarettes. Menthol, at least to me conceptually at base, is a type of tobacco flavoring product. So I think it's good when we are prescribing bans like this that we don't pick and choose. We don't really carve things out for special treatment as a general rule, but we treat like things alike. I think that banning menthols is a good way of treating it like what it is, a tobacco flavoring product and thus banning it like all of the others. Do we do we know why? Like, Well, I don't know. I'll say that. But do any of you know why menthol was the last? Like, is it lobbying or is it like, like why did menthol was the one like the one flavor standing? 
Well, I mean, when you're talking about big tobacco, lobbying is always going to be a factor. But part of the rationale for why menthol was not banned, along with the other cigarette-specific flavor additives, was this idea that there wasn't enough evidence to suggest that menthol was specifically harmful. So in, I think it was 2009, when the FDA and Congress banned other flavors, it was specifically because like the other flavors could theoretically be appealing to children or appealing to people who we very specifically don't want to develop the habit of smoking. But there was this idea that menthol was different. And so they sort of tabled the issue of menthol at the time, pending like further scientific evidence that it should be banned. And the reason why it's come to the forefront now is because there's been a lot more evidence to suggest that, you know, to support the notion that it should be banned. And that evidence led several health groups, several like health advocacy organizations to um, file a lawsuit basically saying that it's time for the FDA to ban it. So now the FDA is taking it up now. From what I read as well, there was also some enhanced lobbying, not just from the tobacco groups that are always lobbying stuff like this, but also from some African-American groups as well, just because those cigarettes are so popular among black smokers. So I think there were also just more people advocating to keep menthol as a viable flavor than there might have been for the other flavors. So let's talk a little bit about the cons. Marcelo, you want to talk to us a little bit about what the policy is targeting. It is important to note that the FDA has specifically stated that they're not going to be criminalizing this. So for example, if you're if you're able to get your hands on menthols, it's not like you're going to be charged with a crime of sorts, but instead they're going to make it illegal to uh, manufacture and sell them. So they're targeting that difference. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? I mean, I think, I mean, you only have to look at the other cigarette flavors that are banned and like, you know, you don't usually see them. You never see them because obviously they cannot be commercialized. So I would think that it would happen the same way. I guess my, my only take on the difference between manufacturing or consumer ban is that I am very glad that they're not criminalizing it. I don't see why they would, but I'm glad that they don't and that they're not doing it. Again, they, they could have, but they're following precedent and, and the, the other precedent works in the same way. So I'm happy that they're not doing it. Do we think that it's going to address the root cause of smoking and nicotine addiction? I know that they say that, you know, there's over, you know, 900 and some thousand who should stop smoking just by the sheer reality that it doesn't exist anymore. But do we really think that it's going to cause, you know, a detriment to smoking at large or even those who are smoking menthols? Do we think that's going to solve that problem? I mean, I don't. Uh, this ban doesn't actually address the root causes of nicotine addiction or why people choose to continue to smoke as a nicotine delivery device. So if we actually want people to stop smoking or to switch to safer alternatives, of which there are many, we have to also address like why they prefer the more dangerous products in the first place, as well as why they want to keep using any nicotine delivery system at all. I also am not entirely convinced that menthols will go away. I think with the other flavored cigarette products, they were significantly less popular than menthols are for a lot of reasons. But because menthols are preferred by so many smokers, especially in, in particular markets, big tobacco and like even international companies that are not like US based still have a pretty big incentive to continue to try to get around the regulations, which is exactly what we see happening in the EU right now. They banned menthols in May of last year. And several reviews of how effective this ban have been, um, especially by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, um, found that the companies like, you know, the the EU equivalent of our big tobacco um, is, is effectively like finding ways to still sell menthols. They're just calling them something different or using different types of flavor additives. So so one of the big problems with this type of policy targeting is that it doesn't address the demand for the product at all, and it doesn't necessarily stop the companies from being very creative in ways to get around it, which is exactly what we've seen elsewhere. 
I think they're also predicating this entire argument on a faulty assumption that if people can't get their hands on menthols and they're just going to stop smoking, they're like, oh, well, it's gone. In reality, I personally think that those people are going to say, well, I guess I'm going to learn to like smoke and it's harshness. Like, I don't think that their nicotine addiction is going to even allow them to quit smoking because if you look at how hard it is to quit, especially cold turkey, uh, like they're making them do through just the immediate removal of them, then I really don't think that that's going to be the driving factor here that allows them to stop this. I really think that their will to stop smoking will be circumvented by their need to satisfy their their, uh, nicotine addiction. So I sort of have two thoughts on this. First, I think it depends on how we frame the cause of why people started smoking. So like if we're looking at root causes of nicotine addiction, the cause of nicotine addiction is that nicotine is an addictive chemical and you smoked it. So now you're addicted to it. But as far as why people started smoking, While there are societal stress-related factors to why people start smoking, you could also frame it as maybe an advertising thing. When you have these packaging that specifically target certain types of people, then maybe the cause of why someone smokes or why someone smokes menthol specifically is because of that targeted advertising. So to the point that you're able to ban the product that's targeted at them, if we look at the cause of why someone smokes as because they were marketed to and they bought into that marketing, then I think this could be a viable policy. On Ryan's point, talking more about maybe people not stopping smoking in the long term, or I'm sorry, in the short term, I think that could be right. But I question if this is a policy that we should look at through that lens. Um, Because while stopping smoking is a metric, a metric that's harder to measure, but equally important is not starting to smoke. And I think something that everyone agrees on is that menthols are a very easy training wheel cigarette. They're an easy thing to start with and then transition to other products. So if you take away those training wheels, then do you end up with people not smoking because it's harder to get in. And so in the long run, as you have exponentially fewer smokers from generation to generation, does your market slowly begin to die out? I think the policy could work if we look at it through that lens. But I think in the short term, not doing anything to address pre-existing addictions means that while some of those addicts will stop when their product of choice goes away, some of those addicts will, of course, continue to abuse the substance that they're addicted to. So then from that argument, David, it sounds like we're needing to look at this from both a a short-term standpoint and a long-term, because if you remove the market of people getting in, the argument that people are still going to satisfy their nicotine addiction is, is going to remain true, which means we don't have those people lost, but over time, we're going to see fewer people smoking. That makes sense to me. Uh, Marcelo, what do you think on this? Well, I think you have to, you know, I, I agree with David, because you, you limit the access this doesn't solve the problem for people who are already addicted, but it definitely makes it harder for people who are not addicted yet to start consuming it. Because if you can't, if you literally can't buy the product, legally speaking, if you can't buy the product, then you can't access it. I mean, there's ways around it for sure. And I think this is obviously the the best time to ban mental advertising was 100 years ago. The second best time was probably whenever they actually did it. But I do feel like this is sort of like a circular problem because it was so popular that it became a household name. And now because it's a household name, the ban on it is going to be so much less effective. Like it, it's so popular, like Meg was saying, that it's going to be hard to get it out of consumers' hands, even if they make the commercialization of it illegal. I think what you mentioned, Marcelo, has kind of a parallel through vaping, which is that, you know, it was originally, as far as I'm aware, it was originally started as not just an alternative, but as, hey, you can wean yourself off of smoking. So people who want to stop smoking, you are able to control the amount of nicotine. Therefore, you 
can wean yourself off. In reality, what happened? Younger people were able to start at a smaller dosage and then they were addicted to then continue to increase it. So I don't know. <laughs> and and those are those are flavored. Those are very yeah. flavored from from again, I don't smoke, but I, I was in a festival like two weeks ago and I can tell you a lot of different flavors, a lot of different smells. Yeah. And and, and you know, those things when they popped off, it was like you said, they were hailed as like this solution that I was going to eliminate the need for the cigarettes. In reality, they just became um, something that, like, again, another household name that just draws more people in. Yeah. Uh, one of our viewers, uh, QD, uh, says you will not ever get rid of nicotine. That's true. Unfortunately, <laughs> at least. Uh, I mean, I guess it's, it depends on how you're looking at it. It's fortunate from Big Tobacco's perspective because they continue to make revenue, but <laughs> uh, from a healthcare I'm sure perspective. <laughs> I'm sure they're very happy about it. They're like, yeah, like, apparently, I mean, who would have thought, you know, making uh, an addictive substance commercially successful would, would lead to, uh, you know, a long, long-standing financial success. Yeah. Uh, speaking of parallels, uh, Mick, I think you had something um, on, on like an example of like Lucy's. You want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. I'd also like to mention quickly that like there are still other like training wheel cigarette type things that exist and will continue to exist even if they ban menthols. So like there's things like lights and ultralights, which are also easier to inhale um, compared to like full flavored cigarettes or wides. So like the idea that we're banning menthols because they're easier like to take in and that might, you know, entice young people seems a little bit erroneous to me when we still have these other types of like easier to stomach cigarettes on the market, which is, you know, maybe that's in the FDA's playbook down the line but like there's nothing stopping people from being like okay no more minty cigs i'll go to like the easier one to smoke which makes it difficult for me to understand but yeah it, i mean we've seen these types of bans um not particularly work in other ways that we've tried to regulate um the distribution of cigarettes and the example that i brought up in prep for the show is lucy's so it used to be the case that they had all these like cigarette machines that sold what are called soft packs which have like 10 cigarettes in them whereas the um, pack minimum now in the u.s is 20 it used to be the case that you could also by single cigarettes, which are colloquially referred to as Lucy's, that both soft packs and Lucy's were eliminated by the FDA some time ago in Congress by um, some time ago. But by outright banning a type of product or like a amount of product as the like through the mechanism of distribution, it seems good on face value because you're not targeting the consumer, you're targeting the company, but it still creates criminality because it doesn't address the demand for the product. And we saw that with Lucy's and with soft packs when the law targeted the sale and distribution of those two numerical forms of distribution the demand for fewer than 20 cigarettes still exists. You know, some people would just like to smoke one or they would not like to pay whatever the cost of a full pack of 20 would cost. This incentivizes street distribution because it creates criminality where it doesn't otherwise exist. So there's nothing stopping somebody from breaking open a pack of 20 and selling them as singles or breaking open a pack of 20 and selling 10. So now we've incentivized the street market as to fill the like numerical distribution of this many cigarettes instead of that many cigarettes you can buy at the corner store. We could see the same thing with menthols where people like try to roll their own or try to otherwise reproduce the mentholated flavor. And so we've now created a criminal market for something that we know has a high demand. Importantly, I'm not necessarily saying that like it's better to target the consumer because it obviously isn't. Basically, I just think that an outright ban doesn't solve the problem in the way that the FDA is pitching it. And it might create other problems that could be more impactful than than just, you know, some other way of regulating menthols in the first place. I think uh, that kind of ties back to David's earlier point about consistency. And when you have inconsistency in your policies and the way that you target things, then your end goal winds up slipping through the cracks. So, you know, if they were banning Lucy's in order to you know make it so that you had to be more committed, so to speak, if you know, you're, you're not really a smoker unless you're willing to drop the money on a 20 pack, right? Like none of these singles in an effort to reduce that. Well, now we're seeing if, if, you're, if your front end of this is get rid of the menthols because it's like 
the gateway drug to cigarettes, but people can go over and they can use jewels or something like that, then you haven't eliminated all of the gateways, which means that your main argument there is not consistently applied. And I'm not saying that, you know, there won't be a net good that could come out of this, but I really think that if we really want to see the positive benefits to society, then you have to be careful <laughs> and make sure your logic on the front end is sound. And to me, when you're inconsistent in your logic like that, it's not a sound argument. I don't know. I, I actually didn't realize that's why they were called Lucy's. So I learned something today. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, it's um the the Lucy specifically with soft packs is where it really gets me. Um, the idea that like we want people to buy more cigarettes so that they will stop smoking has never made a whole lot of sense to me. The idea behind banning Lucy's and soft packs specifically was that if like a young person has like a handful of change, they could buy a Lucy or they could buy a soft pack. Whereas like I, a pack of cigarettes costs upwards of like six, you know, five fifty six dollars now. So the idea is like if you make it more expensive, then you're creating a higher barrier for entry. But in effect that means that people just buy more of the harmful product and like five dollars and fifty cents or even up to like seven or ten dollars for more expensive brands is still a pretty low barrier to entry even for young people so yeah there's an inconsistency there but then there's also sort of a mismatch between the stated policy goal and like what we actually observe as the effects of the policy which is why outright bans of any substance in my mind is probably not going to produce the net good that we think it's going to i think it's odd to look at the criminality element of mental and compare it with Lucy's. And it's solely because of the feasibility of transitioning to, to selling menthols. Like just thinking about it, if I wanted to go sell loose cigarettes on the street corner, I definitely have the skill set too, because I have the skills to open a pack of cigarettes, take one out and give it to somebody. Not a not a skilled operation there. But I have to imagine that infusing loose tobacco leaves with menthol, which is a chemical, and theoretically, if the chemical were made illegal, it'd probably be hard to get. So you'd probably have to produce that chemical. Not saying that people couldn't do it. People make meth. But uh, seems like a more sophisticated operation than your average guy slinging single cigarettes on the street corner. I don't know. It just seems to me to be a much more sophisticated operation so that to me, I don't think that it would necessarily operate the same way. I think it would be much more likely to see large companies like Reynolds and other large tobacco companies come up with new formulas that do the same thing as menthol, but aren't technically menthol. And while sure, that means that the band isn't perfect, as you start to make people change their formulas, you start to get new products that do the same thing, but then you know what those are and you can regulate those too. In reality, there's a finite amount of ways that you can do this. There are only a finite amount of chemicals that are theoretically consumable by a human that have the same effects as men. And so eventually, even the world's most talented chemist is going to run out of ways of getting around this. Eventually, they will run out of addictive substances. I know it. There's faith in my heart. They will not. I'm, I know. I know they will not. Well, they make new ones every day. They make, but I mean, the, the example that you're citing is pretty, David, is pretty much exactly what happened in the EU. Sorry, I'm trying to stop my cat from stepping on my keyboard. Um, <laughs> it's pretty much exactly what happened in the EU. They, like the companies just, because in that particular policy, they had like a percentage amount as to what qualifies as menthol. So they just like came up with a new way to make it minty, but it wasn't like technically under the regulation quality fight is menthol. And so, I mean, yeah, it would be harder for somebody to like make their own, you know, direct equivalent of a menthol and sell it on the street, like breaking open a pack and selling a Lucy. But we're still creating um, a potentially illicit market, which is more or less the effect of a total ban on any substance, which is why, you know, as somebody who's invested in studying the effects of drug policymaking, I, I tend to not favor any kind of total ban on a substance because it doesn't address the demand and it creates a different type of criminality um, than we would have otherwise had. I think the focus 
focus of these types of regulatory efforts need to be much more on addressing addiction in general and addressing why people become addicted in the first place, especially with something like cigarettes, which smoking is highly correlated to poverty and it's highly context specific. And so we could address things like that instead of just banning the substance and hoping nothing bad comes out of banning it or assuming that that we could address the bad that comes from banning it, which if you look to things like scheduled drugs, we can't really, we haven't been able to effectively address the illicit markets that we've created through prohibition of those substances specifically. Well, and if you look at the free marketing they're getting, like I didn't know that menthols were easier to smoke or had like lower nicotine or, or any of this until I had to research for this show. So like now they've, they've almost in a sense spotlighted what this is. Not to say that there wasn't already a huge addiction and, and things already existing, but you know, you almost create this shrouded mystery around something that you've chosen to ban, right? Which is why, like you mentioned, Mick, prohibition didn't work. It, you know, a parental society creates crafty children that live there. It doesn't prevent them from ending up in the place that they were trying to stop them from. Uh, and I think what you mentioned there, as far as, you know, helping people understand what these harms are, or, you know, maybe changing the way that they have to market themselves. Maybe, you know, one of the revolutionary changes was that they had to put that this can cause cancer on the packs of their cigarettes at one point. They had to stop advertising because, you know, there were pregnant women who were thinking, oh, as long as I smoke X brand, then, you know, my baby will be fine. And so, like, you had to have more transparency, which meant that as people could do the research for themselves and access what are these harms, they can make the decision themselves. And that tends to have a little bit better, more effective and longer lasting effects than just banning because like you mentioned, something else comes on the market. Like in the EU, something comes in that flies under the radar. We're pretty crafty individuals, especially in a capitalistic society where we're driven to make money. Like, you know, David, I, I could just break open the pack. So now you might not have, a you know, $5, but I've got $5. So I'm going to go buy a pack of 20 and now I'm going to, you know, be the middleman, the distributor to the people who want to Lucy at that point. Yeah, it's also a really great marketing opportunity and jumping off point for other big tobacco products. So like this ban is coming in conjunction with the FDA moving to approve or give some sort of permission for different types of vaping devices. Um, there was a big hubbub out of FDA a couple of weeks ago about it approving its first vaping device, which is, I believe, also a Reynolds product. It's called Views, one of the Views lines. And so they're not only banning menthols, but they're doing it in conjunction with stamping approval on other types of products, which gives free press to just different nicotine delivery systems. I mean, vaping's not the only one. The U.S. market has recently seen the introduction of what are called um, spitless tobacco or synthetic chew, which is just a pouch of nicotine powder that you put in your mouth. And it has obviously a lot fewer um, health effects as far as compared to like regular tobacco, but it's still a nicotine product. And so it's like, oh, okay, we took your menthols away. Would you like to have this you know, vaping product that we're now saying is like kind of okay? Or would you like to have this, you know, spitless tobacco product that is like not really based on inhalation at all? So it's not only a marketing pro a marketing opportunity for menthols, it's also a marketing opportunity for every other nicotine delivery device, which means that we're not actually getting people to stop using nicotine, which in and of itself, even if you're not inhaling, it still has harmful effects on the cardiovascular system. So we're not removing people from using nicotine, we're just driving them into theoretically less harmful ways of getting it. I think it's interesting how we frame success here. So like we were talking about drugs and you guys brought up like, yeah, we still have drug users. Absolutely. The war on drugs hasn't cut off the flow of drugs to the United States. It hasn't stopped 
certain people from getting their hands on drugs. But what we have seen by enacting bans on substances like cocaine is that we don't have cocaine and toothpaste anymore. We don't have people saying, hey, you can use cocaine to put your kid to sleep. While some people can still get it, it's nowhere near as available as it is before. Cocaine's no longer a pleasure drug that people think this is awesome. And if you're of a certain class, you should do cocaine because it's what everybody does. It's all about reframing the market. So like nicotine is always going to be there. Tobacco products are probably always going to be there in some form or another if you want to use them. For me, the question is, how do you change the framing of that product from this is something that people who are a certain way or who do certain things use to instead, this is a thing that if you really want it, you can go get it, but it's sort of stigmatized by society. And so while the war on drugs hasn't stopped drug users because people are going to use drugs as long as drugs exist, it has changed the stigma around it. It's kept a lot of people from getting into it. And it's just, it's changed how society as a whole views it. And I think that a ban on menthols could work largely the same way. You could get people who could transition to other things that act a lot like menthols, but no longer are menthols just what people smoke because it's what their dad smoked. Well, you've already seen a change on that stigmatization. I mean, even when I was well, 11, 12 years old, you walk into a restaurant, they ask you if you want the smoking or non-smoking section. They don't have that anymore. And I mean, people have also been switching to vaping almost in mass because it's got a different stigma. Um, not to say that it doesn't carry with it a certain stigma already, but you know, it's less objectionable to people to have vape that smells like watermelon around them than it is to have the menthol cigarettes. So like almost, I feel like as a society, I'd kind of answer David's call to like reduce this in a different way uh, is almost just let it kind of be phased out itself. Although I do agree with what you said, David, about, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's important that it's not in the toothpaste. And uh, one of the comments earlier uh, said that there's uh, nicotine in the coffee at Tim Hortons. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know that either. I guess I learned something new every day. I've never tried it, but I bet, I bet it's pretty good if, if it hasn't. <laughs> if it has it inside. Yeah, if you had caffeine and nicotine in the same product, that would be a double whammy. But in the example of like the war on drugs specifically, I mean, the with a lot of illicit substances, I mean, I'm not saying that this would happen to nicotine, but with banning different types of illicit substances, we have created fewer users, but we've also created fewer users that are using those substances in more dangerous ways because they're getting them from illicit markets. So most drug deaths in the US occur because of like things like impure supply or people just not knowing what they're taking. So you know you're taking taking something, but it's contaminated, or you thought you were taking one thing and it's actually another. That's a byproduct that comes only out of a total ban. Um, that, that problem wouldn't exist if we had a controlled supply or if we could actually address demand in the first place. And while that may not be likely in the case of menthols or other um, nicotine products, there's always a byproduct and a large cost associated with total bans because the demand still exists. So we're not only crafty, but in some instances, we're crafty in such a way that like creates more harm in the long run, which is can be more difficult for us to address when they when those types of harms arise. Well, this comment here was really interesting. They're going to create chaos with people that are addicted to them. And I think that whether or not this is the intended purpose, um, I, I know that the purpose is not to create chaos, but if the purpose is this is for your own good, so we're removing it from the market because you're too stupid to figure this out. You know, like that that's almost the message that is subliminally sent when you have something that's just banned from here. I mean, people who are, are smoking are not ignorant of the effects. It's just that they've chosen to do it or they've been addicted and they 
can't stop themselves or it's very difficult to. And I, I think this kind of harkens back to what you mentioned earlier, Mick, that there is a different root cause. Like we're, we're trying to treat the issue, um, but we're not actually dealing with the root cause. Like the root cause is not that there is supply available for people. The root cause is that these people want their fix. And if you can't address the actual cause, you're not going to actually fix the problem. Like there, there will never, I, I'm not hopeful, Marcelo, that, you know, that it'll just be um, eliminated. Like I, I just, I, I think that you'll restrict it just by virtue of, you know, if you restrict the market and there's less available options, then of course that's going to be the case. But at the same time, I mean, I think you're just going to see a jump in profits for the companies that can supply the cigarettes that people will just shift to at that point. Can you imagine, like, you know, we talk about chaos, but if they announced a ban on mentos, like, I don't know, in a month, like the sales would shoot through the roof. Like it would be insane. And like, you know, we saw that when they try to like ban like guns and like whenever like a ban rolls around from the government, it just makes the product hugely more popular, at least for that period of time. It's like artificial panic. Yeah, that reminds me of when they went to ban um, flavored jewel pods and people were like scrambling to get the mango jewel pods because they were going to go away. And like some people have bought up enough of those that they're still able to distribute them illicitly. Although now they're probably, those pods are probably expired. And so what are you really inhaling when you're buying a black market jewel pod? Probably either an impure supply or something that was purchased years ago. And steel cigarettes aren't necessarily as dangerous as, um, you know, a really old mango jewel pod. But still, I mean, people will find their way around the ban as long as they want the product is the point. And that's sort of why these types of bans concern me as a rhetorician, because there's a mismatch between what we're saying we're trying to do and what we're like actually writing down in the legislation. There's a dissonance between those two things. And as long as that dissonance exists, we're still going to have an issue of people using a substance that is bad for them. And then there's also the question of like, should the government even be involved in, you know, legislating what we put in our bodies and all these different things, which is a lot of the common pushback to these types of bans. But the thing that concerns me specifically is like, what are we saying we're doing? And then what are we actually doing? And what's the language that we're using in both of those instances? And what ways in which are they actually compatible versus not compatible? For me, it just keeps going back to this idea of short-term versus long-term, because like Marcelo said, if they announced a ban tomorrow on menthols, people go out, they'd buy all sorts of menthols. It'd be crazy. But let's say I buy a million menthols. That means that I have a million menthols, and every time I smoke one or sell one, I have one less. And so to me, it seems like you have one of two situations. Either companies cannot get around the ban, and so there's a finite supply of menthols left, and at that point, you're eventually going to run out. And because there's only a finite supply left, the cost of that is going to go way, way up. I think a lot of people are not going to be able to cope with a $100 cigarette. So they're going to have to get their fix in other places. And sure, a lot of them will move. But I think, again, you've created that barrier to getting into the market in the first place. Under the second scenario, chemists are able to get around it. They start creating other sorts of things that act exactly like a menthol. Well, great. Now I have a million menthol cigarettes and there's something else on the market that works exactly the same way. So now all these menthol cigarettes that I have are worthless. So again, I think in the, in the long term, it solves itself because then even that person who has a million menthol cigarettes, they're just not going to go back and buy the new product. And while you might not have solved anything, you've probably cut down marginally on people getting in the market. 
I, I agree with what you said for the most part, David. There is one caveat that I would give, and it's this idea of a known enemy. And you mentioned that there's going to be chemists or someone will find a way to create something that is a viable replacement. And we know the harmful effects of menthol cigarettes. We did not know when jewels and vapes came on the market necessarily what their dangers were. So part of me starts to wonder what happens when new things come on the market as a replacement when we don't know what the harmful effects effects are right away. Like I, I, in, in my mind, then that seems to just, you're, you're trading one harm for another. And what you said is still true that, you know, the amount of harm from menthols will go down. I don't know that the net good would come from that though, just because you're shifting it to something that in theory could be even more dangerous. I think even in a world where we don't know the harm, we should ask ourselves the probability that it's worse than the harm that we know. And I think the harm that we know from cigarettes, especially over long-term usage, is pretty devastating. Now, theoretically, you could come up with something that has quicker acting effects that still kills you. But to me, it seems like getting lung cancer and dying, pretty bad health side effect. Hard to get a much worse health side effect unless it was just something that acted faster. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably unlikely that you're going to get anything that's actually worse than the product we currently have. And as a market, always self-correcting. I feel like these companies will find ways to sell products more addictive than these. You know, maybe I'm wrong with this one, but I feel like Juul would have, uh, some way of Juul would have come out anyways, even if like cigarettes were fully available in all of their flavors. I feel like they would have found a way to make the little electronic things like market them in, in some way. So like ban them or not, new products will keep coming out that are marketed in a different way for a different public, probably a younger audience to try to like get more money out of people. Well, and while it's hard to imagine a product that would be more dangerous than cigarettes, there is a difference between like dangerous, like we understand it to be dangerous versus it's dangerous and we don't understand it to be dangerous, which is what you're discussing, Marcelo, with the, the jewel. Like it's people thought that it was safer or we didn't necessarily understand how dangerous it was when it first came out. And so people used it and continue to use it as if it is inherently a safer product when we just truly don't understand the effects of it yet. And it also is not like part of the other issue with, with vaping products in general is that um, cigarettes are finite. When when it burns to the filter, you're done. Whereas you can just keep you know hitting a vape until the entire, you know, pod is gone and a jewel pod's equivalent to about a pack of cigarettes. And so are we actually trying to get people to use, stop using a specific delivery device? Um, or are we actually trying to get them off of nicotine in general? And it seems to me that the FDA would like people to stop using nicotine in general and wants, wants people to stop using the more dangerous devices. But in really targeting just the more dangerous devices, we're inherently pushing them to devices that we don't entirely understand or devices that just might potentially have health effects that we can't anticipate at this moment. So I, I don't know. I, I have an issue with the concept of like banning anything on principle, but it this this one in particular seems to be difficult for me because it's it's like, oh, we want people to stop using nicotine. So we're just going to make this one particular product class, you know, gone. We're just going to make it illegal. Um, but that's, it's still not addressing like all the ways in which people are still going to get their fix. I mean, are menthol jewel pods still going to exist? I don't know. Like there's all these other questions still in the air for me that this, this ban doesn't address because the reasons why people use what they use are much more nuanced than than what just a blanket ban can address. So I, I guess for me, the big question that all of this turns on is, is nicotine the thing that is harmful 
or is it the other things that are in cigarettes that are harmful? Because I'll say at least my understanding of nicotine has always been that nicotine is just really addictive. And if you put nicotine in stuff, no matter what else is in that thing, you're going to be hooked on that thing. And the real harm of cigarettes came from the things like tar and other things that were in them that when inhaled had really bad adverse effects. So on the one hand, if nicotine is the thing that's directly harmful, then yes, you still have harms as you make more nicotine products. However, if nicotine is just the thing that's addicted and you're now addicted to something that's less harmful, then it seems like you don't have as many harms when you get rid of that delivery device. And I don't know that any of you know the answer to that. Maybe you do. I'd be happy to hear it. Maybe it's more for a chemist, uh, which I don't think any of us are. Unfortunately, uh, Austin's not on the show today. <laughs> My understanding is the same as yours, David. I, I was under the impression, at least, that nicotine was the thing that kept you coming back. And then the other chemicals and there was what was, or at least the predominant harm came from those. Well, I mean, nicotine is not the most dangerous thing in cigarettes. You're right. It is the thing that keeps you coming, but it's not harmless. It has, I mean, it speeds up your heart rate. It's a, it's a uh, stimulant. So the effects that you would get from drinking a cup of coffee or even taking prescription stimulants, it's going to be somewhat similar to using nicotine. It increases your heart rate. There's, you know, in high quantities, it can, you know, increase your blood pressure to somewhat dangerous levels, um, especially with habitual use, which is a problem, whether you're smoking cigarettes or using spitless tobacco or vape no matter what it is. So I think, you know, some health regulators would like to live in a world where we don't have anybody using nicotine because it has harmful effects in and of itself. But you're right, it is it is not the most harmful thing in cigarettes. It is just the thing that keeps you lighting them up. But some of this is also targeted at the idea that nicotine is like the most dangerous for the most vulnerable. So that'd be like children, pregnant women, old people, things like that. So we would like those populations not to use it. But there is also some evidence that nicotine has positive effects, especially for people with dopamine deficiencies or or memory problems. Um, it's just how we get it and how much we're using and what we understand to be a benefit of using it that's at issue. So for the general public, nicotine could be understood as in and of itself a, a net harm. I think another thing that's important to consider here is public perception and how they can take information and have a, a false sense of confidence almost. So like the fact that there is fewer harmful chemicals and substances in vapes does not mean vapes and jewels do not come without a certain amount of risk, just like anything in life. There is a certain amount of risk, certain amount of harm that can happen. It's just like we've been mentioning here about mitigating that. And unfortunately, it seems that the perceptions of menthols is that they are harmless or that, you know, because the smoke is cooler as I'm I'm breathing and it's not scalding me, it seems like there is not a harm that accompanies that. So the belief that the menthol has removed the harmful effects at that point or, um, you know, it's it's you're not going to have side effects like popcorn lung, you know, like there's there's risks that need to be understood. And unfortunately, public perception at times runs away with this and says, oh, well, these are harmless when in reality, they're just less harmful. Exactly. And with menthols, it's um, immediate harm that you are sort of masked from an understanding. So like if you if you think of the perspective of like the young smoker who's like 18 and they smoke their first cigarette, you say that they smoke something like a camel wide, which is going to be pretty heavy hitting. They're going to cough so much that it's painful and they're gonna be like, oh, my gosh, that's I'm not doing that again. That was so terrible. But with something like a menthol, because it's really easy to inhale compared to a full flavored cigarette, you don't immediately perceive the harm to your body. And so you may not have as much of a cough or you may not, you know, immediately perceive it as damaging, which I think is exactly the same problem that you're describing with Juul. There's emerging evidence that they're very harmful, but you don't perceive that as the consumer because you're not like coughing profusely or, you know, all of these other side effects that we that we associate as being, you know, detrimental to us specifically because there's a sense in which I think everybody at this point understands that cigarettes are bad 
but not everybody who smokes understands cigarettes as being bad for them specifically. And, and menthols obfuscate that for the individual because it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't cough and I don't, I'm not having all these problems. So like, I'm okay, even though in the like more macro sense, I understand cigarettes to be bad. I'll toss this out there and then, you know, you guys can push back or agree as you want to. I, I think for me, one of the key issues with this is that government wars on blank, war on drugs, war on poverty, in this case, war on menthols, they tend to be a waste of taxpayers' money. Not to say that, you know, to David's point that they can't create net good, but rather I feel like for what they cost and what they seek to do versus what they actually wind up doing, I don't feel like they're as efficient as they could be. And I feel like there are alternatives. Uh, specifically for this one, I would say the better alternative would be uh, health campaigns or campaigns in general to make sure that people understand the risks accompanying this as opposed to just outright removing them. Um, I would say that, you know, in general, those types of bans, those types of wars, especially in this case, tend to create um, a lot more harms and not reach the mark that they had been intending to. I, I like that. A lot of times in the, the drug regulation and especially like the rhetoric of drug regulation space, people will talk about this idea of like, are we fighting against something or are we fighting for something? So if we're fighting against drugs and we're fighting against nicotine or we're fighting against cigarettes, that's a weaker stance to take than like, you know, I'm fighting for better health. I'm fighting in favor of the American people being better off. And when we're fighting a substance, we have like much less like materially achievable goals than like fighting for in a positive sense, like for people to be healthier or better off. I think it's probably a stretch to say this is a war on menthol. I don't know that a comparison to the war on drugs is necessarily a good comparison. And my sole reason for it is I think that there is fundamentally a difference in trying to regulate what is already a black market industry, what is already illegal, and trying to regulate what are legitimate actors. Like R.J. Reynolds is not going to go underground and become a cartel. R.J. Reynolds benefits by being a legitimate business that operates within the laws of the United States. At the end of the day, if you pass a regulation that says you can't have menthols that are made this way, R.J. Reynolds isn't going to make menthols that way. It's not going to cost that much money to enforce it because it's not like you're going to have to like try to stop people from smuggling menthols in from over overseas. People are mostly going to abide by our trade laws. You might have a few issues. And while I like the idea of educating people about the health effects of menthols and cigarettes, I think that at a point it could be duplicative because we've all said this whole show, everyone knows that smoking is bad. And we can say that, well, there seems to be this misunderstanding with menthols that they might be better for you. But that also seems to clash with me with the idea that people don't really know what menthols are for the most part. You can't not know what a menthol is and also think that a menthol is healthy for you. So at the point there's that breakdown, maybe the education is overdone. But even if we stipulate that the education isn't duplicative, then my answer is we could do both. We could have an education program and also have a ban on making menthol a certain way that makes it harder to get into that market to start with. And to me, if we just stipulate that both of those are good ideas, then doing both is the best solution, especially if it's not cost prohibitive. But I have no idea what the cost of an education program are. I just can't imagine the cost for a regulatory program against legitimate actors is going to cost that much more than regulating drug companies or something like that. Marcel, what do you think on this? And then we'll probably head to our hot takes. I think I'm ready for the hot takes. I'll just say that I could, I would love to see uh, one of those, like those Don Vape ads, but for mentals, like mentals are not cool kids. Don't smoke those. Swipe left on mentals. All right. Well, we will be right back with our hot takes. All right, we're back and I'll turn it over to Mick. My hot take is that I, I'm not sure that like total bans on anything really work in the way that we think that they do. And if we actually want people 
to stop smoking, period, or stop consuming nicotine in general. And we need to do something that goes beyond just banning the product. We need to address the demand. And we need to address things like the correlation between nicotine consumption at all and poverty, um, and between nicotine consumption and stress and depression levels and things like that, rather than just banning the product and hoping that people um, take the cue and stop using it or stop using a product that's similarly harmful or similar in effect. And again, that goes back to the idea that there's a mismatch between what we say we're doing and what we're actually doing, um, which is sort of what I'm concerned about as someone that studies the language of drug regulation and use. All right. I will kick off my hot take by saying that I think that one of the key issues for me here um, is not the net good that can come from this, but rather the fact that I don't think that the net good is going to be as large as the FDA and other government regulators are claiming that it's going to be. And I would caution them um, against those types of projections because otherwise you're going to leave people pretty sorely disappointed after that. Uh, For me, being a small government guy, I think one of the, the key issues for me is that the government coming in and just banning something like this is stepping on individual liberty. And I don't think that, you know, smoking is a great habit. I don't think that it's something that is a good to society like we've talked about. It's it's clearly detrimental. But at the same time, I, I worry about the amount of appeal and free advertising that's going along with this because of the conversations that are taking place. And I don't think that there's a great stance for the government in this case to be saying, well, we don't think that you're smart enough to make this health choice for yourself. Therefore, we're going to remove it. It's not to say that I wouldn't support the net good of there being fewer menthols on the street, but rather I disagree with the way that this is taking place and how it's being done. Um, and I'll kick it over to David to probably talk about the uh, how we can do both. <laughs> nah, nah. My hot take is that I don't think it makes a hill of beans worth the difference either way. I think that you already have a population that's addicted to smoking this product. I think that people are always going to smoke. They always have smoked. They always will. There's not going to be a great way to stop it. I think that what we are looking at is how do we get the fewest or how do we keep more people from entering this market. I think that a ban on menthols probably does that to an extent. However, I also think that RJ Reynolds, Newport, etc., all pay people who are a lot smarter than I am to come up with duplicates of their product or ways to get around that regulation. And yes, I think you can continue to draft tighter and tighter regulations, but you're always going to have a different product that comes into the market that satisfies that need. So at the end of the day, while I do think that this ban would be beneficial, I think that we're talking like 50.5% beneficial and 49.5% unchanged. I just don't think it moves the ball that much. If I had to give a disclaimer at the beginning of the show, I would have said that while I understand the idea of banning cigarettes and in this case, menthols, I also know that it, it, I'm a hypocrite because if my logic is, well, this is bad for you and so we should ban it, also because I don't like it, then I would have to apply the same logic to beer, which I love and I drink every week, or burgers, which I love and I eat too much of. And like it, literally anything in my life that I sh- probably shouldn't be consuming that makes my life, I guess, shorter or whatever, but do does bring me happiness. So there you go. That's one disclaimer, like huge. It's like, yes, obviously I want to ban cigarettes because it wouldn't affect me in any way. I don't really care. That's it. I guess my hot take would be that I am trusting the Zoomers and I'm trusting the future generations to start start stopping, I guess, or, or stop believing that any of this is like cool, specifically about cigarettes. I'm very happy with like transitioning like when I was a kid and now that I'm older to see like cigarettes stop being as popular as they were. And I trust that this will be the case, even with like, to me, like Juul and, and other like cigarette adjacent products. 
I want them to be less popular and I feel like they will be. It will take some time. Um, I'm just, I guess I'm putting my trust in future generations and I think everybody should. All right. Well, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars and we will catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.